It's about ceding the space to them, really, but making sure that we try to be seen as good ancestors who gave them some of the tools that they needed and didn't screw up completely. The world has never been changing more rapidly, dislocating the ways we work, learn, and live. On the Learning Future podcast, we discuss the knowledge, skills, and dispositions we all need for our learning future, exploring insights with world-class educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders from across industries and across the world. Hi, and welcome to the Learning Future podcast. I'm your host, Luca Parry, and today it's my delight to be speaking with Valerie Hannon. Valerie is a global thought leader, author, and advisor, inspiring systems and people, including notably myself, to rethink what success means in the 21st century and, crucially, the implications for education systems all over the world. She has had an incredible journey in education. She's the co-founder of both the Innovation Unit and of the Global Education Leaders Partnership and has been a secondary teacher, a leader, a researcher, a director of education, an advisor in the UK Department for Education and a senior advisor to the OECD in its Education 2030 project. When Valerie speaks, in my view, it's hard not to listen. And she has recently been sharing some of her ideas through authorship uh, with her recently released second edition of a book entitled Thrive, Schools Reinvented for the Real Challenges We Face, co-authored with Amelia Peterson, and a new book that will be released later this year, The Future School. I'm very much looking forward to getting into that as well. Valerie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'd love us just to start with a very simple question, which is what's something you've learnt recently on a podcast all about learning? <laughs> Um, well, I guess many people would be provoked by the incidents of the pandemic itself, uh, <clears throat> being locked down, being far more isolated, not necessarily having fewer conversations because mm -hmm. I'm spending an awful lot of time on Zoom. Indeed. But I, I, don't, I don't go to that. I go to something which has been dawning on me, um, I guess, for the last five or six years and which in the end prompted me to put myself in perda with a what towel wrapped around my head and write Thrive, sure. um, which is that um, stories matter more than logic and data. Mm. And this um, goes very much against my natural proclivities, uh, <clears throat> the way I'm wired, and my own, my own education, I guess. I, <clears throat> I studied philosophy in, very much in the old um, analytical school, um, none of your continental existentialist rubbish. Right. <laughs> Left bank thinkers, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, and I, I, do, I do think I am I, I, naturally sort of prone towards a, a, a logical step-by-step, <clears throat> -step, say linear, I don't, I, don't, I'm not, I don't want to be reductionist and, sure. uh, about this. But um, in public life, I guess I'd always laboured under what I now think to be a delusion that logic and data, you know, clarity of evidence. We all talk so much about evidence-based policy these days. Indeed. What really counted and made a difference. And I don't think now that I really believe that. Mm. Um, I, I think that the story we tell ourselves about ourselves is what really matters or what's, what really drives us in our personal, personal journeys <clears throat> and also in political life too. So my observations of politics, and I want to come back to politics because sure. it's, it's been the driver for <clears throat> the focus of much of my recent work. Um, I have observed that those who are skilled at telling stories, at shaping narrative, are the ones who can attract followership mm. and make change or proceed with the same direction as of, of your, because the old story is so powerful, or yes. a reversioning of it. Yeah. Um, so that's the kind of animal we are. I mean, we blend this capacity for scientific thought, for data, for logical process, with an other part of us, which is story-driven, which is so fundamental to our nature, which is creative. Mm. Um, but which is also affective. Yes. It's to affect and hits, yeah. hits the emotions. And so it's that, that try, trying to incorporate that into my worldview mm. has been a struggle for me. But actually the doing of that has driven my recent work. Wow. 
Gee, that's, I think, a suitably profound starting point, Valerie, to be honest with you. <laughs> I, I, I'm really interested around the, the primacy of the cognitive, you know, and some of the interesting thinking, you know, that we have become so logic-driven and evidence-driven that we've, in some ways, we've lost the other dimensions of what make us truly human. And, you know, through your work, notably in Thrive, the idea that we have these different levels of thriving, you know, the intrapersonal, the interpersonal, the kind of societal and the planetary. And that really, you know, a lot of that book speaks at pretty high levels about why we need to change the kind of our common mythology of the destination to which we're going, be that infinite growth in a finite world, uh, you know, and, and the social and economic and environmental implications of, of that. So take us a bit deeper into this world that you've been exploring really through your work, which has, of course, huge implications for all social systems, but particularly educational ones, ones that focus on human development uh, around what, you know, what is it that, that we're doing wrong at the moment and how might we correct course or maybe remember some of the parts that we've forgotten yeah. in, in kind of what we've, what we've all created in our, our modern world? Yeah, it's a good starting point because I think some of it is remembering what's been forgotten. Yeah. But some of it is complete and utter reinvent or not reinvention, but invention. Invention, sure. Or un unprecedented in unprecedented circumstances. Mm. So if I go back to the starting point, um, as someone who'd laboured in the vineyard of educational change for too many years, um, I was really quite absorbed by the glacial rate of progress and you know, really trying to get a, a grip on why that was, why why people who were fundamentally driven by the inadequacy of our learning systems were getting so little traction. Mm. And I come again to this, to, to my kind of epiphany really, which is that the story we tell ourselves or have been telling ourselves about education has been a fundamentally economistic one. Right. And because it's so taken for granted and so, so tacit in, in most cultures, you don't, even, you don't even notice. It is common sense. Mm. And so I, I started to explore a little bit the, the rhetoric. I mean, point one, education hardly focuses, hardly features really, in political agendas other than as an add-on. You know, if you look at um, prospectuses or, or, the, or the kind of um, uh, <clears throat> proposals that political parties put out at election time, Education will become ninth or tenth on the list, and it'll usually say stuff like, we'll invest more, we'll make it more equitable, we'll get more people to university. Mm. And in that, there is also the hiddenness of them. Sometimes it's made explicit, and I draw out in the book where politicians have been explicit about it, actually said it out loud. It's, it's to increase our national prosperity because yeah. it's the best anti-poverty -pro anti program there is, and every developing world, of course, buys that. And why wouldn't they come back to that argument, if you like, in a minute? Mm. Um, you need a better educated populace to increase your prosperity, a.k.a. your GDP. Yeah. And at the individual level, um, it's the route to social mobility. If you're working class, to vault out of the working class. Or if you're middle class, to retain your position, to get access to the better universities, the better jobs. Hey, presto. Mm -hmm. These are the promises. And that is deep, deep, deep in most cultures, you know? Mm. It's hugely... Um, uh, unquestioned, uh, even. Yeah. Un unquestioned. It, it also forms from there. It's incredibly um, influential in forming the rest of what goes on. So unless you, you nail that fundamental purpose... So I try to start with the question, what is learning for? Yeah. Somebody asked me, I think about eight or nine years ago, to write a, to write a paper um, what, uh, entitled What is Learning For? And I, I, I said no to Big Man. I said, bloody silly question. Yeah, it's obvious what it's for. I started to think, actually, you know what? Mm. It really isn't. And that's what set me thinking about what do we take for granted that learning is for? And I got tired of going to conferences too, um, where so many speakers would say, well, schools are about learning how to learn. Like, you know, that's the deal. And I thought, seriously? Um, for, for whatever purpose? Yeah. You know, the Nazis were great learners. Yeah, yeah that's a good They point. were really collaborative and they were creative and they were problem solvers. They just chose 
profoundly disgusting problems solved, not problems, but projects to engage in. So learning to learn is just not good enough. And I I realized that we actually had to think about learning for a purpose. And what was that purpose? Well, the one that I've already called out really um, struck me when you, when you put it in those terms as, as partly kind of, um, yes, commonsensical, but actually when you look at the evidence underpinning that narrative, it falls to pieces, especially at this stage in the 21st century, completely mm. falls to pieces. Mm. And throughout your podcast, you explore that, so I won't bore your listeners with going through <laughs> the indictment of the current system <clears throat> and its many shortfalls. Mm. But the, the point being that... It's no good, in my view, Luca, just going straight to how do we change pedagogy? How do we change curriculum? Wow, assessment's the bottleneck. Let's attack assessment. Yeah. Because you get nowhere unless you have an overarching purpose that gives you a field of vision. Yeah. That gives you a playing field. Sorry to mix metaphors here, <laughs> um, which really enable you to think about the full remit. Of, of learning and learning mm. systems and institutions within that. Mm. Um, so that, that really was the starting point. And then the bit was a taking a step back and say, well, right, okay, if we are talking about new purposes, what are the new conditions we face? And at the beginning of my book, I tried to lay out what I see to be not the surface level changes. I mean, I think for some educators, it's really problematic talking about the future because they get hit with like 20 changes. Oh, there's migration, there's climate, there's financial insecurity and instability, there's inequity. And you get da 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 And you think, oh, God, how do I handle this? Paralysis by, yeah. Exactly, exactly that. So what I tried to do was to take a sort of synoptic view of like deep structure changes, the tectonic plates, if you like, or shift. And I see them to be three, which I, <clears throat> I won't go into here. People can look at those in the book, but they are around our relationship with the planet, our multiple levels. That's not just warming. That's a number of things. Mm. It's our mm. spiritual relationship with the planet, planet and our, our relationship <clears throat> to the natural world, as well as the minor point that we're actually frying it and we'll be toast if we carry on in this, in this direction. So there's all of that. Mm. Second pivot point is around the apotheosis of technology, where that's taking us particularly around jobs and work, how we live and breathe. But the third one is around the nature of humankind itself, how we are evolving ourselves and impacting upon our own evolution for the first time in human history. So I've tried to lay out some of the big tectonic plates of shift and then say, well, in the face of all of that, what must be our purpose? And it seems to me, and this, this is a shift, I want to say this, because it's a post-humanist point of view and not a humanist one. If you go back to people like Jacques Delors, who do wonderful work around learning to be, learn to know, <clears throat> uh, learning to do, and so forth. But it was, it was anthropocentric. Yeah. And I suppose where my thinking took me was that actually, if you take those pivot points in human history seriously, what it leads you to understand is that we need to think about our fundamental desire to thrive, I'll come back to the biological metaphor in a minute, being absolutely interconnected with the thriving of the natural world and with the planet, of which we are a part. Absolutely, yeah. But of which we are not the master. Mm. And the old story is us of dominant, you know, the cleverest animal yeah. um, <clears throat> dominating the and redefining and shaping everything there is for our flourishing. Yeah. So I know it sounds a bit like um, minute differences with with colleagues working in this area, but I don't talk about human flourishing as a goal in itself because I do think we have to see this much more holistically with other species and with the planet itself as a living system, as a living system. Uh, It reminds me, Valerie, of the, the... The concept I've seen, which is, you know, how we move from ecosystem to ecosystem and one uh-huh. where, again, we do not place. And I'd never actually reflected on on the kind of humanistic psychology worldview of which I would subscribe, I would say, you know, sure. Abraham Maslow and all the kind of elements and how we, you know, evolve that work. But this is, I'm sure you must have seen um, A Life on Our Planet by David Attenborough. It's a wonderful documentary. And, and I love this concept of a witness statement for a 93-year-old you know, 
change maker that he has been across his life. Mm. And there's this sentiment that, you know, we see ourselves as living apart from nature. Well, we must see ourselves as a part of nature. Again, just a change of a couple of prepositions in this case. And, and it shifts our relationship with the kind of bioregions in which we live, which many of us have been somewhat oblivious to. And in some ways, COVID has unearthed for us because we've realized actually we're more place-based, you know, in 2020, in 2021, than our species has been for decades um, due to, you know, movement, et cetera, um, and what obviously is happening. So I'm, I'm really interested it's in- It's quite a paradox, um, isn't it? Just that I think that's a great observation, but more place-based, and I hadn't thought about that, but you're absolutely right, mm. yet also more globally connected than ever mm. before. Mm. Powerfully, you know, in a day, I'll be yeah. having conversations here- Absolutely. With India, with Hong Kong, with you- Yes. And, and with London. Mm. So um, it's, it's strange, strangely paradoxical, but I have never been more place-based. I know the, the walking, I'm up in the Peak District in the North of England. Lovely. Where my main home is, and I have learned more, more footpaths, more ways through the hills yeah. um, than in the rest of my, I don't know, 40 years living here. It's remarkable. Isn't it remarkable? So yeah, this, I, this kind of the local geography meets the global connectography, as I've heard it absolutely. spoken about as no, well. And, but, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really remarkable. But continue to dive into this idea around thriving, because I'm very interested in this. And, and the idea of everyone's, you know, it's, it's just, it's beyond a cliche now, but, you know, education is broken. I mean, great. The question is how... Oh, well, a, you say that. It's a cliche amongst the, the Chatterati. It is not a cliche yeah. amongst the vast um, majority of, of citizens and certainly the political class. And I want to come back to that. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good point. Uh, I've also heard the perspective that in some ways, you know, one thing we should do is distinguish between schooling, education and learning, because I think mm -hmm. we, we all conflate them all the time, uh, including myself. Uh, but, you know, schooling as, as a an institutional model that, you know, arose out of a particular moment in time, for example, as opposed to learning being a deeply human instinct, really, that's been part of our evolutionary psychology and tribalism and beyond. But yeah, I'd love, I'd love you to take us through how we change that mental model, because there are people that are advocating for a change in one aspect of education. And you talked about it, you know, shifts in, you know, we do a curriculum review over here, or we look at assessment over there, or we look at pedagogy over here, we train our educators in new ways. But really, I, I, if I understand your perspective well enough, it's not going to cut it. We have to really go down to the level of the mental model itself of what is learning for, what is an education system, or mm -hmm. what ought it be focusing on most in terms mm -hmm. of being, you know, and I don't even want to say the word successful, because I don't think that... That's just tainted and, and quite a well. It's good. To, it's good well. to use it in inverted commas and and, and heavily emphasise the inverted commas. Great. Um, because part of this thinking, of course, leads you to redefine success. Mm. You are bound in the end to have to ask yourself the question: What is a good life? Yeah. What do we now mean by good life? You know, if you've if you've had four divorces and your kids aren't talking to you, but still you've got the beach house in Malibu, is that successful life? The, there's that wonderful anecdote of the Mexican fisherman that you may have heard as well, which is the idea that he's living peacefully uh, in, a, in a coastal town in Mexico. And this kind of MBA grad flies down and he's quite a good fisherman. He spends his time mm -hmm. fishing, uh, you know, does a good catch, comes back, plays music, has, hangs out with family and friends. And the MBA convinces him to start, you know, says, oh, you should start you know, a whole suite, you're a great businessman, you can become CEO of this, you know, massive company and make all this money. And the fisherman just says, asks, well, at the end of all that, where, what will I be able to do? He said, well, you'll be able to buy a house on the beach somewhere and, you know, do whatever yeah. you want. He says, well, that's oh. what I do right now. The idea of how do we evolve, how do we get out of this, this kind of paradigm, which is about growth at all costs, externalities and economic models, which don't take into account the social and the environmental impacts that take place. Uh, the idea of this race to the top or learning loss, which I think is part of the same conversation, learning toxic, loss towards toxic. what? Yeah, mm -hmm. so. All right, well, let me, let me take you through the thought process and then I'll come back to the notion, that distinction that you've drawn between learning and schooling in a little, a little bit later if we've got right. time to do it, because I think it's very fundamental. So moving back to how I tried to think this through and where, where I've taken the work. My own view is that a precursor to getting the kind of shifts that we need 
is to build the public will for change. Mm. And to build in, in parallel with that, and you can work out the interdependency as you see fit, the political will for change. So what I have been trying to do really is to create a language, a vocabulary, um, if you like, a worldview mm. that an upcoming politician today could adopt and utilise in conversations about the future and about political agendas, um, in which they feel secure, in which they do not feel they're committing political harikiri, um, but which they can argue for a very different paradigm for how we conduct public education systems, mm. what their goals should be, what roles should be, you know, how we determine curricula. But all of those things need to derive from a vision around thriving. And as you've already said, I've offered a frame which says, please think holistically between levels of thriving, which is about finding purpose, personal meaning, personal identity, uh, personal sense of peace, as well as adventure and challenge. <laughs> so at the intrapersonal level, how you thrive making great interpersonal relationships, which all the evidence shows is the, is the fundament of good lives. How we create thriving societies and remembering that that's a contested view. So there are many people who have a strong view that thriving societies are rich societies, are the most prosperous. And you see, what I've tried to do with this work is to ground it all in evidence, which might sound strange where I've come from, but you can't just assert Here's my set of liberal democratic values about what thriving societies are. So take that. Yeah. You actually have to have some evidence base, particularly around the issue of what is a thriving society. And in that, I relied on the evidence which said, well, if you take a number of indicators which nobody would contest are indicators of thriving societies, like um, perinatal mortality rates, suicide, yeah. um, yep. poverty, homelessness, illiteracy, Rates of incarceration. I think there's something like 14 indicators, which, you know, you'd have to be like, I don't know, you'd have to be insane not to say, yeah, I would say I want that in trying society. And you take them all together. Mm -hmm. And sociologists, a great book, just here on my shelves somewhere, The Spirit Level. Ah, yes. Um, Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett said, right, we're going to run the numbers across a whole range of societies. <clears throat> and lo and behold, if you were well, older than all the societies they could find the data for, that is. Sure. If you run the numbers, what you discover is that when you aggregate all of those incontestable indicators about thriving, the most thriving societies are not the richest. Mm. It doesn't correlate. What it correlates with is societies which are most equitable, where whatever resources they do have are equitably spread. That's the social contract. Mm. And when you get that, you get higher levels of thriving on all of those individuated <clears throat> incontestable indicators. So what I've tried to do is to, to ground at each level, intrapersonal, interpersonal, societal and planetary, the idea of what do we mean by thriving <clears throat> in some of the evidence that we've got. Uh, and so that out of that, if you, if you get a vision of what thriving starts to look like, what a good life looks like on this planet of ours and as we approach the second part of the 21st century, then you start to evolve some learning goals. Now, I probably got them wrong or not, not right anyway, but the point is to get this debate going. Mm. Can we please have the conversation? So my objective has been to try to equip people to say this is the conversation worth having. You know, we don't necessarily know the right answers, but we know that. These are the things that really matter now. And so one minor way, I guess, in which the, the wretched pandemic has helped is that people are talking about well-being. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I worry slightly because it's a there's something a self you can be you can enjoy well-being and the rest of the world going to hell. That's you know? true. Yeah. If it's a personal so there is a, that's there's right. a it's an individualistic view. But if you start to think of all these levels of thriving as being interconnected, um, you can start to derive an agenda hmm. for where we take learning in the next part of this century. And my objective 
um, lowly as it is, is just to try to get a different kind of conversation going at the public level because in the jurisdictions in which I work, it hardly exists. Yeah, it hardly exists. It is back into the old frame. And if we talk about where education is going next, it could very easily snap back, I think, um, because people just don't have the bandwidth in terms of facing all the stress they've had to deal with and so on. I just think about, you know, my linguistic, my linguistic hat, actually, and the idea of, you know, critical discourse analysis, Norman Fairclough, who says beautifully, consciousness is the first step towards emancipation. And unless we're having the conversation, Valerie, then nothing can be changed because we're not aware. It's the, you know, the unknown unknowns, um, as, you know, has famously been you know, used in political circles before the known knowns and the unknown knowns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the idea is we have to be having this conversation and going down to first principles if possible. We c- it can't really be about tweaking the current model or, well, yes, let's, let's now add a layer of technology, you know, to mm-hmm. what we do now. And wow, we've innovated and created a, an innovative school. I really do think it has to be a complete reconception um, of what it means to live in the world and to be in an education system at whatever level, playing whatever role. Um, but take us, take us into... Well, just following on from that point, yeah. just before we, before we move on, you, what you're also ending up being is trapped in the notion that the outcomes, you know, that, that the, the desirable outcome is getting to university, getting to college, getting a degree, and that's the kind of be-all and the end-all because it opens all your doors and everybody knows it's bullshit now, but still we're locked into it. And, you know, there's this wonderful metaphor of the, of the wounded victor. Um, those who are victorious in this competition, who still end up profoundly wounded by it or brittle or, you know, yeah, some may be fine with that. But you also forget the 50% or more who do not get into university, who do not feel valued by any system and who do not enjoy a sense of dignity, um, or value because they've been cast off by the system as of no worth because they didn't make it through that rat race. Mm. And that, that whole thing, that whole model is just has got such a grip on the imagination. Yeah. I mean, I know I'm a product of it. I'm a working class kid from a home without a book in it and a mother who was a domestic servant. Wow. And the entirety of the worldview was basically get out of this and there's only one way and it's education. Of course, at that stage, it was, it was kind of true because that was the only route out. And, you know, this is the story of my life and many of the people who write about education. So why would they query it? Mm. But now we have to see that actually we have got things profoundly distorted. And that speaks to a range of issues like heart, head, hand, yes. the valuing yeah. the cognitive over <clears throat> other ways of being. Yeah. Um, and the relative value that we give to work, but that's a different question. Anyway, the bit I was going to go on to next was your distinction between learning and schooling. And I want to say this really, which is um, where my last chunk of work, um, which was precipitated by being invited to deliver the the Australian Learning Lecture on the concept of the future school. Mm. And I thought to myself, well, hell, you know, how, how, how do you pontificate about the future school? Is that an exercise in prediction. Um, you've got all kinds of new pieces of work like the OECD work on, on scenarios. I'm sure you've seen it. Um, yes. Back to the educa- future of education. Is this about prediction? Is this about um, trying to be prescriptive? And here's how my methodology or my thought processes went. Mm. I started from <clears throat> the view that if you want to talk about the future school, Um, You have to have some kind of handle on how we conceive of the future. We cannot predict it, but futures thinking, futures work, that's a whole discipline in itself now with a vast and rich literature, the discipline of anticipation. Mm. So what I did was to survey, in the end it was about 23 organisations who work in this field specifically of relating features of the future to what schools might look like. And out of those 23 organisations, I have extrapolated some design principles for schools. Mm. So that gave me, in a sense, my data set, which was, ah, if you think analytically and carefully about the future and the nature of learning, 
Here is what you come up with in terms of design principles for schooling. Then I went from that to identify some schools who are exemplifying those principles and looked at what they were doing. Mm -hmm. There's a video on this which your listeners might like to, to view, and, and that will give them I'd love that, Valerie. We'll put it in the show notes so that they no, can No, no, certainly. It. But here's, here's the thing. Here's where I got to, because mm -hmm. this is, speaks to your question, Luca, a really, really important one, I think, which is as I explored all this and as I thought about it, I, I became increasingly convinced of the importance of institutions and the, with a caveat, mm -hmm. redesigned institutions, for sure. But um, if you say to me, you know, how do you think education is going to go in, in the coming uh, 15, 20 years? It's a, que it's a, it's a direct question I have for you. Well, let's take that and I'll that's, look back. That's great, I'll, I'll sure, yeah. You know what? We could have the more, much more of the same. And in some ways, that's pretty much the most likely scenario. Mm. School improvement continues, um, yada, yada, you know, the, 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 the contours. Scenario one or, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, more of the same, incremental improvements, maybe, probably increasing inequity because that's the way the trends are going and mm. so forth. We could have a much more concerted effort at transformation if we get people to start talking about different objectives, different purposes, and we see pockets around the world, particularly amongst the so-called leading systems, who are really shifting their paradigm. And I'm thinking here around some of the Canadians, some of it's indeed some of what's going on in Australia, some of the New Zealander efforts. Mm -hmm. And through particularly OECD starting to shine a light on these, others think, hello, is something important going on here? Because yeah. the damn thing is still a global arms race, you know. There, there is this, in, and that's maybe a good thing. So there, there could be a more concerted effort to transformation. But the one I want to focus on is, is for me the third really not at all improbable um, future, which is that the big tech companies really go for it. Yeah. They really go for it, and they do to schooling what they've done to shopping. Mm. And, um, well, you know, you could say a number of things about that. I look at it with horror, and I do so because I, in my gut, believe that the school is a community institution, face-to-face, person-to-person, body-to-body, is profoundly important for thriving societies. And I try to make the case in the future school that we disintermediate, that we lose our institutions at our peril. Yeah. And so that's why I feel very passionate that Local institutions, and they're going to be one of the very few actually left in societies, we talk about being place-based, mm. where people come together out of their homes, meet people from other families, other kinds of contexts, have different kinds of conversations in a way which can be choreographed, which can be enriched by teachers whose business is learning, whose business is to link up formal and informal learning and really create terrific ecosystems of learning. Mm. Those institutions, I believe, are going to be really vital for thriving societies, but only if they're redesigned. So I take your distinction between learning and schooling, but I want to argue for the school and that we lose it at our peril. And if you think that having education brought to you on your screen by you know, Jeff Bezos or, or Mark Zuckerberg, is a thriving future. I'm not, I don't happen to agree with that. But it is a right, it's a real possibility. It is perfectly possible that it's being plotted big time in, you know, various outposts around the world, not just Silicon Valley. Maybe Jack oh. Ma's doing it. Yes, yes, he is. Uh, through the Jack Ma Foundation. I, I mean, it's, this is such an interesting question. You know, the role of a school as, not to just serve the public, to, to create a public, the idea of, you know, a civic society. And I mean, I think as much as we should celebrate some of the amazing uh, steps forward that philanthropic capitalism has, you know, polio has largely been eradicated from the world due to the Gates Foundation. There is something that I think is quite unsettling about having, bringing the kind of that consumerist model carte blanche into what is a deeply collaborative field of education. Um, 
Alice, I'm really interested in in how you would describe Valerie, because this is interesting. I wasn't expecting the kind of defense of a reimagined institution, but I can absolutely, um, I think, step over to your side on that. I wonder about the work you've done on learning ecosystems and therefore the role of the school as being kind of a central human component of that learning ecosystem. Because I think there is a danger that the learning ecosystem concept can be just adopted by you know fangs the big tech and they just go cool here's our learning ecosystem it's all in a platform and you know we know that technology with great with great instruction and great pedagogy can do wonderful things but you know the social and relational aspect of education I think still remains the most important and for any young person an educator frankly and leader that's been in lockdown in whatever corner of the globe it's being able to go back and see your colleagues and friends that's been the most wondrous thing in, in kind of the human, the most human form, I, I think I would say. So how, what would you, what's your reflection on the kind of school learning ecosystem construct? Um, what, what is a learning ecosystem, first of all? Some people may not know um, of the great work you've <laughs> well, done with WISE and beyond. And then, you know, where do, where do we go from, from here on that? Well, let me start off by saying that the, the phrase has been, you know, taken up and annexed and slapped onto any damn thing that you want to talk about. So it's been drained of meaning, to be perfectly frank. And, you know, um, it's just more fashionable to talk about ecosystems than it is to talk about systems. Slap eco in front of anything and you're on a winner, aren't you? Um, so in the report that I did on this, well, some three years ago now, I tried to start off with a real, oh, here I come back to my logic and my specificity, <laughs> I suppose. Um, uh, a pretty rigorous definition of what we meant in researching ecosystems as a, as a new phenomenon mm. in learning um, and not just a re- rebadging of something that happens anyway or something, you know, by definition you're all in an ecosystem because everything's exactly. e- kind of c- interconnected so you can't avoid it in a sense um, and that's, that's not very helpful, it doesn't take you anywhere. Um, so what we were trying to research, and the thing that I, I personally find interesting right now, I, I'm going to come back to your meaning of it in a minute, I haven't forgotten, <clears throat> um, was firstly um, the notion of diversity. Mm. So a learning ecosystem breaks out of the concept that education's in this bubble, either within the school as a freestanding institution, you know, with, with actually quite high walls, which get breached every now and again. Um, But not even schools which are highly collaborative with other schools in school networks. And sometimes those are called ecosystems. Well, I don't think they are because they're monocultural. Mm. And the the key feature about ecosystems is their diversity. If if you're not talking diversity, you're not talking ecosystem because you're talking about interdependence, you're talking about different species, having Mm. different role relationships, different contributions, and also transience. You know, they're, they're, they're not... In infinitely sustainable, so, God knows. Yes. So what I was interested in was where learning was intentionally taking place in contexts where very diverse players came to the party. Um, and, well, to, to cut to the chase, I mean, we've done some case studies in that work. People, I'll give, you probably got the reference to the, yeah. the WISE report, yeah. so you'll read it, you'll read it, can follow that up if they want to. But in my last piece of work on the future school, I've, um, I did some videos of leaders of what I've called archetypes. Um, I've got time to go into that now. But one of them, um, the Liger Leadership Academy, um, in the interview, he said, and I didn't expect it to go in this direction at all, but he said that we got to a certain point, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> we got to a certain point in our journey when we asked, well, who, who, who are the teachers? In order to do the real world relevant um, projects that we have in our sites, how do we manage to teach that? And the answer must be the whole world. <laughs> and so they intentionally went about bringing in specialists, whether they are um, robotic scientists or whether they're nutritionists or whether they're people from Silicon Valley, you know, um, uh, remotely, or whether they were diving specialists because they did a project on reinvigorating the, the, the coastline of Cambodia. Mm. <clears throat> Seeking out resources for learning in communities and globally to create 
an extraordinary learning palette, which, and I use the metaphor again, the school choreographers. So they intentionally bring together very diverse sources of learning and sources of teaching in order to create a very, very rich learning environment. Mm. And our case studies in that piece of work looked at the ways in which schools were engaging in diverse partnerships and collaborations. It might be in their locality, it might be in their community, it might be amongst their parent body, or it might be much further afield in order to create great learning experience. And therefore, second point, to create new learning pathways for their young people. Mm. So that's what I define as a learning ecosystem. I don't see it as a platform at all. Um, but I hope increasingly, as we ask the question, what is learning for? And if you are serious about the answer, it's about thriving at those four levels, you realize you actually can't do it unless you construct some kind of ecosystem. It's just beyond the resources and the capabilities of a defined group of people, aka the teaching staff. Mm. You know, they have they have got to reach out big time and make great learning partnerships. Um, which, by the way, does not demote or denude their expertise, either in the subject sense or in the pedagogical sense. It, it should leverage both. Yes. But get over the pretense that they know everything there is to know about physics or engineering mm. or, or indeed, you know, drama, whatever it happens to be. Mm. You don't. You've got a terrific um, jump on <laughs> your students. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but your role really is to bring into the piece, bring into the party so much more mm. um, because of your position and make that accessible to your learners. And so that, that is my view of what a learning ecosystem is. I think it's really um, a significant part of enabling schools to think about thriving at those four levels, probably an imperative. Mm. But now I'll loop back to your point. Um, it does not, but a long way, um, undercut the need for interpersonal connection of the face-to-face -face variety. What I think it does do for us, and I, I hope schools, I know schools, because the schools I'm working with here, I think about this, how do you really optimise the use of our face-to-face -face time? Yes. Don't waste it it's a great on question. stuff that yeah. could be done in communion with your screen. If you're doing it in communion with the screen, well, bloody do it at home or somewhere <laughs> else. You know, you don't need to use this precious, precious time where yeah. you've got this yeah. space, the school built for learning, You've got performance space, you've got sports space, you've got, you know, uh, collaborative, collab particularly collaborative space. Um, optimise all of that and use time and space very, very... So the consequence is what I'm saying, by the way, have direct implications for your use of the fundamental pillars, time, space, people, partners. Mm. Valerie, so, oh my goodness, I, there's so much there I just want to unpick, but I've, I've got two, two questions for you. Um, but I, I really do, for every industry, every part of what makes a society a society, should be asking itself that same question. When we are physically in a space, what is uniquely different about that moment? Mm -hmm. Because if it is something that can just be duplicated online, then why on earth are we wasting the most precious time there is, which is when we are all together, where we've had to be so physically distant for so long in so many parts of the world. So I, I really, and, and you know my proclivity for, you know, the social and the emotional aspects of learning and the importance of those alongside the cognitive. And you can also add a range of other things, like the physical, for example, vitality factors, things like sleep, nutrition, uh, exercise or movement generally. You know, these are things, if we take an ecological or holistic approach that we must consider in the way that we design all of our environments if we care about thriving or optimal productivity. Although again, the cult of productivity becomes a bit too optimized then. And it's about, you know, outputs, which don't necessarily need to be human. But my, my second to last question, my penultimate question for you is if you're a, if you're in a school and you're an educator or you're a leader, uh, you're working somewhere in the system or you're a parent and you're listening to our conversation today, where should one start on this particular journey? 
And mm. you've talked about the vocabulary, which I think is really interesting. Like, can we have a new language about how we understand what success mm. might be? Um, but what other advice would you give in terms of the starting point or the steps that might be required that can cascade towards this idea of a future school, which, you know, is operating as a dynamic ecosystem based on the definition you've given us? One thing I'd say is that, all, you know, there's such a huge variety of contexts that people are in. So there isn't a single answer to this. Mm. There, there really isn't. And um, some people, well, I mean, it's just obvious <laughs> um, in, in the kind of journeys that people are on and, and the kind of socioeconomic circumstances that people are in and so forth. But I think I, I, if I can say anything general, which without being stupid, um, I think I would say start to deliberately engender these kinds of conversations about purpose, mm. about what we're trying to do. And maybe, just maybe, if there's something that the pandemic has offered as, as people go back, yes, of course they are. And I think you might, you know, social emotional audits and all that stuff. But I would hope that at the same time or um, at the appropriate moment, people start to um, deliberately orchestrate conversations about what they're trying to do as a community, mm. as an institution, as a school, um, what they really care about. And people may be surprised by some of the answers. I mean, I think those conversations need some scaffolding. I don't think you just ask the question flat out, you know, <clears throat> and expect to get thoughtful answers. But if I were a school leader, and I know plenty of you who are doing this now, I think the the aim of trying to, both within staff, amongst the students, but particularly amongst the students and the learners, but particularly too amongst parents, start to get conversations going um, systematically and, and with, with outcomes yeah. about their, their purposes in coming to school every day and, and you know, everything. I mean, I, I will never forget that the beginning of the lockdown here, <clears throat> Um, just as the schools were shut, first lockdown, first lockdown, yeah. schools were shutting down. And I was watching TV when these, these, there's kind of rather sad um, shots of kids running out of school and the staff were standing there looking very sad and I was saying, oh, Lord, you know, what, where, where is this going? What's going to happen? And there was this interview with a head teacher, big school, Manchester, mm -hmm. and um, she said, it's dreadful, it's a catastrophe. Learners, students have got to have purpose, she said, that, you know, the main thing is purpose. And I thought, fantastic. This one's speaking my language. I'm just, who is she? You know, what's she talking about? And she said, and these students have had a their purpose, getting their GCSEs, and that's been taken away from them. That whole worldview has a, just a profound grip. Yeah. That's what the system's for. Mm. Snaffing your credentials so you can make it to the next tier on yeah. and, you know, get your door opened to a prosperous life, whether it's a successful life, whether it's a meaningful life, whether it's a satisfying life, are not answered questions. And these have to be our questions, and they have to be made so serious <clears throat> that people can understand that this is not la-la land, yeah. this is not going soft, this is not ceding the territory of success to people, you know, saying, oh, success doesn't matter. It does matter, of course it matters. But we have to reconceive of it, I think in ways that we, 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 we can do, we're in touching point of doing now. And I think, you know, there's a, there's a huge movement around how assessment is conducted and what it assesses, that yes. will be valuable, but it will only be successful if we talk different purposes. Yeah. And there's also a really in, important, perhaps slightly more distant dialogue emerging around, as you put it, the primacy of the cognitive, why it is that we value intellectual gifts um, above everything else. Well, there's good reasons. Science has got us to where it has. You know, we've got a lot to be thankful for, thank you very much, like vaccines. Yes. So um, no messing, you know, as Jenny Mitchell once remarked, I mean, wonder if I can remember which song it was, we got to the moon, you be polite. So all of that matters, but it's not all that matters. And also it has brought us to our current predicament which is that these smarts could exterminate us. Mm. Especially as we build new technologies and our wisdom or consciousness potentially doesn't 
keep pace. Keep, keep pace, exactly. So I suppose my short answer to the question is get conversations going that are scaffolded on good provocations mm. and good insights into people's lived experience because people's lived experience, not, not, not the data that will t- tell them about change, but what they're facing on the day-to-day yes. will tell them some important things about how we might need to progress. Well, uh, that's a beautiful answer, Valerie. It takes me to the final question, which is, and in many respects, it just piggybacks off what you've, you've just spoken to. You know, if you could summarize the incredible lived experience you've had in all the different vantage points and kind of offer something to the, the listener community, you know, what would be the take-home message that you would offer? Well, it sounds like a cliche. So many of these things do, don't they? But I, I think um, that the insights and the, the voices of young learners are profoundly inspiring now. And, you know, to attune to listening carefully and understanding their perspectives on, on how the world is evolving um, might not be a bad place to start. Mm. I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic. Um, I, I really eschew those kinds of labels, but um, I'm curious. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm so old, it won't affect me. <laughs> Come on now. No, 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 I'm, I'm really conscious. I'm getting to the point where, you know, there's a lot less left than I've, than I've had. And I, I, I know that the, you know, I am not the generation which is going to be impacted by the three big tectonic shifts that I've, I've mentioned. Yeah. But I know my grandchildren are. Mm. And so it's about ceding the space to them, really, um, but making sure that we try to be seen as good ancestors who gave them some of the tools that they needed and didn't screw up completely. Valerie Hannon, a beautiful place to finish our conversation thank you so much for joining us my pleasure thanks for listening to the learning future podcast to find out more about our work drop into the learningfuture.com and follow us at learning future on linkedin twitter and instagram here's to building a world of thriving learners together